Tyrese Halliburton was stunned, Malika. Uh, the league is stunned at this trade. First 10 for three. Welcome to another edition of the Indie Cornrows Podcast. This is your host, Mark Schindler. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, colleague, and friend, Caitlin Cooper. Caitlin, how are you doing today? Doing well. Glad to be back on the mic with you, doing another podcast. And this week, we have put out into the internet, I asked people for questions. So we're actually going to do a mailbag pod. Yes, I'm very excited for this one. I do uh, sound less like I'm in an aquarium uh, than last time, but still in a slight aquarium. I'm currently talking to you guys from Uncasville, Connecticut. I'm out here doing a feature. Uh, so I, yeah, I've been all over the place this summer. I'm going to be somewhere else next week too. So we might, we might have another pod where I sound like I'm underwater, but uh, I, I finagle it a little bit better this time. But uh, yes, I'm very excited to dive in. Caitlin, how do you want to get started with this? Yeah. So just as an overview for people who weren't following us on Twitter or didn't submit questions. We have like roughly 40 questions. Um, some of yeah. them are overlapped. So we are going to do a little bit of synthesis and give credit to the people that asked them, but we're going to do three, roughly three segments. So the first segment that we have that we're going to start with is just everything Pacers. Since we are a Pacer podcast, I think that that probably makes the most sense. So are you ready to just dive right in? Very. Get me okay. Going. So our first question comes from Elliot Beaver, a longtime listener of the pod. Great friend. Who, Yes. Do you believe Jalen and Isaiah can be a successful front court of the future for the Pacers long term? Uh, I don't want to be harsh and say no, but I think that it kind of just comes down to what is your view of long term? Um, like to me, I think you and I tend to be at least based on what the reactions were from summer league and just in general. I feel you and I kind of align in feeling that Jay, Jay not Jalen, uh, Ajax is a lot farther away from being like a starting caliber player than I think we tend to look at. Um, I mean, then I think what the fan base seems to think of him right now, would you agree with that? Yeah. And I think that my thing, like just at a very basic level with this question is given that the Pacers just attempted to sign Deandre Ayton to a max offer sheet. I think that I, nor probably they necessarily envision this as the long-term starting front court. Now, does that mean that it might be the starting front court on day one this season? Um, I think that that's entirely possible Um, for me to see, like, let's just talk about a little bit, like what would have to change from both of them or what type of developments do you need to see where you would be like, okay, yeah, this, this is the starting front court for the Indiana Pacers on a good team. Uh, I mean, I think to me, ideally, like for me, actually viewing them as a viable starting front court on a team that is like competing for home court advantage, let's say, Ajax has to really develop into a four. And I think they're already kind of, I don't want to say that they're out on that, but they really aren't testing the waters of developing him into a four. And I know like granted that requires a lot, but um, I mean, it feels pretty set in stone that they're like viewing him full-time as a five now. So um, and I, I, I don't know. I'm just not really there as a believer in Jalen being a four long term because defenses don't really view him that way either. And I think his skills are just kind of um, 
not that it couldn't happen, but I just would be pretty surprised if it did, if we're being honest. So like, it just feels like we're kind of doing the same thing of obviously two very different players, but it feels a lot of like trying to do the same thing with, with miles and Domas and just being like, well, we're in the, in, in between a rock and a hard place. We're just going to start you both and try and figure it out. Yeah. With the difference being that like, I don't want to be harsh, but that yeah. right now, like Isaiah Jackson and Jalen are worse players than miles and Sabonis. Like, oh, unequivocally. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I guess for me, like, yeah, on the surface, it's kind of like what you're saying with miles and Sabonis. It used to be always, well, like Sabonis can roll and miles can space, but it's like, to what degree can they do these things? So like neither Jalen or Isaiah Jackson can really necessarily space to the corner successfully right now. Um, Jalen mm-hmm. makes some of those shots and is more respectable, I think, than what you know, Isaiah Jackson's going to be given that he only made like single digit jump shots last year. You know, there might be something to the benefit of having Jalen spacing above the break where he shot 36% last year, just in the sense that like, if you do have him stationary at that spot, kind of like what the Mavericks were doing with Aiton in that series where they would put Maxi Kleba up above the break rather than the corner, it makes it a little bit harder for those bigs to just be able to slide right over in front of the basket. Um, but you know, Maxi Klebo is also shooting the ball at obscene levels for however many games in the playoffs. So um, it made it harder for you to be able to roam off there. I think that like defensively too, what you're saying, like Jalen had probably the greatest rebounding impact of the bigs after the trade deadline, which is helpful. And I do think that Isaiah Jackson did a little bit better on the defensive glass in summer league than what, and I don't think that we mentioned that on the last pod. That's probably something that I should have brought up, but getting some contested rebounds and his numbers weren't too bad there. But like, I think defensively, it's either going to have to be a case that Jalen's going to continue to show progress being able to defend in space, which he did to a degree by comparison to how he looked in Phoenix. Cause like in all honesty in Phoenix, Aiton was better at that than he was. So it's either Jalen's going to have to continue doing that, or we're going to need to see a lot more strides from Isaiah Jackson in drop coverage, which I felt was still pretty iffy with his positioning, especially against the Kings. And uh, yeah, I mean, especially in the second game against the Kings and and Vegas, but two, like it's, it's just an overall, like what I guess I would just term at the talent level. Like we're going to need to see more from Isaiah Jackson as a whole, besides just him being like a play finisher roller. And that was kind of what we also talked about in summer league that like the first two games, they were trying him in some different spots to see what he could do. And that was a little bit shaky. And it's not like I'm expecting this to happen overnight, but I would want to see him being able to be used in some different ways for me to think that, yeah, these, these two can be the future. Now, that being said, the Pacers did outscore opponents in the roughly, like, you know, it was only like a hundred minutes that the two of them played last year. So I do think that there is reason to see more from it. And if this is what way the Pacers want to go, like, this is kind of what next season's about. Like, let's find out, let's see what the two of them look like. Let's see what different ways you can use them and assess it from there. Yeah, I agree. Um, And I think that this, leaks into some of our other questions, but I think to me, this is more, it, it just gets interesting when we start looking at O'Shea too. Um, at least for me, that's, that's kind of what it always comes back to. You know me, like I, as Tom will always tell us, uh, I am, I'm very much so like on the O'Shea reset bandwagon have been for a long time, but um, like just in terms of looking at modern basketball, particularly on the offensive side and honestly, like what he does defensively too. Like I just, I almost view him as the better long-term prospect out of the three, at least for what he brings immediately and, and has shown in terms of improvements as well. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. 
you are a little ahead of us because I tell you what, yeah. Twitter really wanted to ask a lot of O'Shea questions, but yes, they did. Um, the next one that kind of feeds into what we just talked about, Connor Johnson asks reclamation projects. What is the process like for teams when they are trying to figure out if a player has the goods, but was stuck in a bad situation versus that player not having what it takes regardless of situation. And he says, example, Jalen Smith. I like this question. Um, mm-hmm. I think it almost flows into kind of personal philosophy for me a little bit. Like I just, you know, knowing people who, who, who work for teams as scouts and, and do things like that. Like there are guys who literally their job is to keep tabs on other teams, watch their, watch their players, watch the, their G league system um, and keep tabs on what they are or aren't doing. Um, so I think in some ways, like I would imagine um, like if we had KP on the pod and asked him, you know, what, what was the process like for, acquiring and not just acquiring TJ Warren, but knowing who TJ Warren was taking a gamble on who he could be. I imagine it's a, we have guys who worked in the sun system that know more about him. We know that the suns were a rough organization and developmentally he had what four coaches in four years. Um, and, and, you know, I think like it's harder saying that TJ is a reclamation project to a degree when he was like, I think you averaged what, like 15 to 17 points per game when he's in Phoenix, it's more about injuries and whatnot, but I think it's, it kind of flows into that for me. Like even looking at Aaron Neesmith last year, I, I think you and I are both like a little bit um, weary is the wrong way to put it, but like you and I are, we, we need to see a lot from Aaron, but um, to be fair, I mean, he did come into a different, into a difficult spot. You know, it's, Boston was not exactly in a position to say, okay, well, you can go out there and make mistakes. Um, he was very much so in a spot where it was like, okay, you need to hit shots or you're out of the game and we don't really have room for you to make mistakes. Um, so I think it's kind of that just being uh, saying omniscient would be the right way to put it, but like kind of, you know, understanding and, and realizing context across the league outside of your own um, and trying to understand why each prospect is, is who they are right now. Um, whether or not you can give them a better situation, give them more run. I think that's kind of what it comes down to. Yeah. I mean, I think that Kevin Pritchard had a quote with Scott Agnes in the recent interview that Scott did with him talking about Aaron Neesmith and basically what you're saying that like, you know, while they're in Vegas, they're not just watching the Pacers. They're watching all the other teams as well and seeing what guys are doing. And Aaron Neesmith did have a pretty successful summer league in year two, especially by comparison to what um, just happened in Las Vegas and that, you know, they had been watching him and, and seeing what he could potentially do when he's not playing behind Jalen Brown and, and Jason Tatum and assessing that type of stuff. But I also think I would point to the risk factor because with all the players that we've just talked about, like for the Pacers, you know, and, and to their benefit, it's going to sound kind of weird to say that COVID was to their benefit, but the Suns being depleted to the degree that they were gave them a peek at what Jalen Smith could do when he's not playing behind Aiton or JaVel McGee or, or trying to find minutes. And he performed pretty well in those six games. So that provided a unique window. But in addition, like that trade, and, and maybe the Pacers would tell me this is completely off the mark. But to me, that trade was a much as, as much about getting off of Torrey Craig's contract for next year and getting a second round pick in exchange as it was acquiring Jalen Smith, because the day that it happened, it was rumored that they were looking for other places that they could potentially flip Jalen Smith to, and then ultimately decided to keep him. So like, if it worked great, if it didn't, no harm, no foul, because you still got off the money and you still got draft compensation. So and to a degree with TJ Warren too, like it wasn't like the Pacers gave up a bunch of assets to, you know, 
put on this reclamation project. So I think it's a little bit of a combination of both. They are assessing and seeing potential upside where, you know, even if we go back to Victor Oladipo and Sabonis that like, Hey, if we bring Victor here and he's a top option. And also at the same time, he's gone through this body transformation. He's paired, you know, refined skills with his agility and his overall athleticism. And we see a bigger vision here. And we see that when Sabonis isn't in a makeshift four anymore, and we put the ball in his hands at the middle of the floor, like what else that could be. But in all of these situations, there wasn't like massive amounts of risk without knowing what other trades were available. But I guess that's the way that I would look at that one. But if we want to move into the next, I tell you, Mark, there's two players that people really want to know a lot about. So these I've kind of grouped together, but I will give credit to the people that asked him. This one is at the Armo Trader. Do the Pacers just hold on to Miles Turner and let him hit free agency if the Lakers deal falls through? What's the appetite to bring him back next year? Can we just talk about the quote-unquote Lakers deal? I don't think we've <laughs> talked about it, have we? We haven't talked about it. I hate it. Um, like, I, it's just so confusing to me. Or, or to say it's confusing, maybe that's unfair, but like my assumption would be if they do actually make that deal, like, hey, there's no way in hell that Rick Carlisle is letting Russell Westbrook play for him. Like, I think that's a given. Um, if he didn't like having Rajon Rondo on his team, which he did not, Rajon Rondo did not like playing for him either. Uh, quite clearly, he said it as well. Um, I don't see how Russ at this stage is is fitting with that either. Um what kind of appetite do you think the team even has to buy him out? Like he's on an expiring, but that that's a lot of freaking money. Um, and we haven't exactly seen this team be uh, super willing to do that. Um, I don't know. Like that's without even getting into the entire valuation, but like, yeah. I mean, uh, the Russell Westbrook part, here's what I'll say based on like what I read from Bob Kravitz in the athletic and what Mark Stein has suggested. It sounds like, it's not going to happen unless they buy him out. And of course, like if you're yep. Kevin Pritchard and Rick Carlisle, I'm not doing that deal unless they buy him out because it's counterproductive yep. to everything that you did at the trade deadline and what you've set yourselves up to do next year. You didn't just like, and it's not the only reason they traded Malcolm Brogdon, but we saw what happened in the minutes. And while they deserve context, we saw what happened to Tyrese in the minutes when he was out there with Malcolm Brogdon. That's mm -hmm. going to be amplified times 10 if it's Russell Westbrook instead of Malcolm Brogdon. So I, I, that part, like, I'm just going to ignore that a little bit because I will say this, like, and I think you and I were a little bit on the softer side of this to begin with clear back last year, but like, think how many things in the last year that for years we've been told, well, Herb Simon's not going to do that. Yeah. And now suddenly they have like, oh, Herb Simon's not going to go through a rebuild. Well, they lost the final 10 games of the season and they did trade a lot of veterans. Oh, Herb Simon's not going to let the team trade a player for just draft picks and expiring money. Like they're going to have to get young prospects in return. And they did do that with Tyrese, but they traded Karis Levert to the Cavs for Ricky Rubio and, and draft picks. Oh, Herb Simon's never going to play in restricted free agency. Well, they like, we agree. could have been pricklier with what they did, but they did extend an offer sheet. So I don't know that I'm ready to say, oh, Herb Simon wouldn't buy out Russell Westbrook because it does seem like whether it's Kevin Pritchard, whether it's Rick Carlisle, whoever it is, has seemed to have changed his opinions on some of the ways that the Pacers operate. So if we just want to move past that particular aspect for a second, I do find it a little bit ridiculous that the Lakers are like, we're only going to give you one first when yeah, the Pacers would have to be taking on expiring money, plus you would be getting two role players in return. Well, yeah, and it's not just two role players. Like, those are two guys who would start for them. 
and B probably what outside of AD and, and LeBron, that's two, that's their two next best players. Like, I don't think that. Sure. But that's also kind of a commentary on the Lakers roster. Well, yeah, no, 100%. Like I'm not trying to say otherwise. I just think like, again, you and I don't try and make it out like we are experts, but I do think to me, it is a little bit laughable that they are refusing to include the pick. Like, I just don't know what other deal is popping up that actually makes sense for them. Um, or not even makes sense. Like that actually happens money wise that gets them better. Um, so I think that they're holding out for Kyrie Irving and that's kind of the the problem for both sides when you think about yeah. it, because where are either of these deals going? Like if I'm the Lakers, I'm not trading, doing a deal with the Pacers until I know if Kyrie Irving's off the table. Like I know the unpredictability that's there, but your ceiling is going to be higher in my opinion. If you're the Lakers with Kyrie, then it's going to be like, maybe your floor is a little bit reliable just because Buddy and Miles are more reliable individuals to a degree if you get them. But like, I, they're not going to put both picks on the table until they know that Brooklyn isn't trading Kyrie. And in the Pacers perspective, like, why would you pull the trigger and be like, yeah, we'll only take one pick that's five years from now when, you know, who else is taking Russell Westbrook on? So it feels like it could be a degree of a staring contest there. Definitely. I I just think to me, maybe I'm being too much of a pessimist. I just would put no stock in Kyrie, to be honest, Uh, incredible player. Like you mentioned, I think in terms of the actual ceiling, like that changes it to such a massive degree. But I also am just, this is part of why I'm happy to not be a GM currently. Um, This is not the kind of decision that I would look forward to making. Um, I, but can uh, one thing that I kind of geek out about, I was talking with some friends about this. Can you imagine Miles and AD in a front court together on defense? Yeah, I mean, some of it's kind of interesting to me when I think about it, because, yeah, I mean, it would be, you know, terror at the rim. But like thinking back to Anthony Davis defending TJ Warren in the bubble and obviously like TJ Warren was, you know, basically a human torch, but like. That's kind of what Anthony Davis's weakness is to a degree. Players who can both weave over screens and play and pick and roll at the four. So it's a little bit weird to me that like if the Lakers even thought this deal was a possibility and these are minimum contracts, but they signed Damian Jones and Thomas Bryant to two of their roster spots, effectively signaling that AD doesn't want to play the five. And now, like, you're going to go after Miles at the five, potentially. I mean, and it, it makes sense because, I mean, the best shooter on that Lakers roster right now is probably LeBron when you look at it. Like, yeah. they were a bad three-point shooting team last year, and at least there were players on the roster that you believed could make threes. Like, if you look at it right now, like, that is a very negative space group of people. Yeah. So, like, in that sense, I get it, but, like, I just – there's just a big part of me that is just thinking already in advance, like is miles actually going to be on the floor at the end of games for that team? Or are nope. they still going to think, well, yeah. are, they, are they still going to think that they're going to be better off with like 80 at the five and LeBron running pick and roll with 80? Well, that's exactly what I was thinking too, because my thought with it was, yeah, I think you get miles to pair with him for large stretches of the game, play as solo five um, solo big, I should say when 80 sits. Um, so the defense stays together. And then in the last, five, eight minutes, whatever you want to call it. Like miles is probably off the court, like, which is <laughs> exactly like you're putting that him might in a be, different situation. And that might like, be yeah. why the Lakers are lowballing it to a degree, because yeah. I mean, they might be looking at it. Like what you said, I think is accurate. Like buddy and miles probably would be the next two people, but at the same time, it's like, 
okay, how much is Buddy getting hunted at the end of a game? Are you going to play double big at the end of a game? And are you creating somewhat of the same dynamic? Like, obviously, LeBron, Miles has never played with somebody to the degree of LeBron. But Miles isn't going to get guarded by fives if he's playing with Anthony Davis. Anthony Davis is going to get guarded by five. So it's kind of going to be somewhat of the same situation for him. Only like, yeah, you you are going to have a better defender than Sabonis out there with you. And that would make a difference. But um, yeah, I, I don't know. But I guess if, if that deal doesn't happen, Mark, what's the appetite for the Pacers to bring Miles back next year? And would they let him hit free agency? Uh, I think if... If the Pacers let Miles hit free agency, that would be such a massive uh, organizational failure, in my opinion. Would you agree with that? Like, I feel like that's so clearly, like, I I know to a degree, like, obviously we can talk about, like, in terms of somebody whose trade value has been, uh, let's say, all over the place in terms of reporting, um, it's, it's hard to parse through. But at the same time, I think if you let a player who is a starting caliber player just end up walking after totally waffling on him for the last couple of years. I think that would be a pretty big mistake. Um, not saying that they should keep him, but more just, I, I think that speaks more to the process of the last couple of years than anything else. I will say that if, if they kept him until the end of next season, I would be shocked by that. Unless there was like, because I I'd mean, also it's frankly like, be kind of annoyed if they did. Not, oh, yeah, not I mean, at Miles as a person. No, no, not at Miles. Situation. It's just that, like, I think he has the right to make whatever decisions he wants to make. And based on how this summer goes, like, again, I think some of it is, like, some for some reason, like, the Pacers are being painted in somewhat a bad light here. And I'm like, okay, but, like, it was already reported at the beginning of the offseason that Miles didn't plan to sign an extension this summer. And if you're the Pacers and you have a chance to go after a top five, seven player at that position and you don't do it, you know, that would be organizational malpractice. So they went after eight and it's created an awkward situation. Now I can't imagine that that's even if like miles is a professional, I'm sure he's going to come back in a contract year if he is back and he's going to play hard because he has every reason to, but it doesn't mean that those hard feelings that are potentially there are just going to go away. Like, I can't imagine any of this has changed his mind and made him think, Oh yes. Like I would like to resign there. So if that all remains the same, I, and he was, if he stays on the roster past the trade deadline, I'm with you. Like, it's kind of like when we talked about before when Chad Buchanan was on local radio and like, I get it. It's GM speak, but he was like, you know, I, we're not trying to move miles. We're more of a listening team. And I'm kind of the point like, okay, if, if that's the accurate assessment, I have a lot of questions about how you're going about things. So, um, I think that the appetite to bring him back to answer the, the, Twitter person's question is going to be entirely on whether the Lakers throw in the other pick or if another team emerges, if nothing about that happens, because what we talked about before, like it doesn't feel like there's going to be a lot of options given that Phoenix seemed completely disinterested in doing a signing trade, even though it could have saved them money um, Mm -hmm. on the luxury tax and that Brooklyn didn't seem interested in this and what other teams have already addressed, like unless another teams emerges, their appetite to bring him back is probably going to be to, try to rehab his trade value but even then like I was talking to doing another podcast the other day and somebody had brought up like if the Pacers get out of the gates really slow like nobody's expecting this to be a good basketball team but like let's say they start like one and eight or something is that helping his trade value 
Like, no. I don't think it's going to. So um, that all has to be considered. But if we want to wrap this into it, because there's lots of Miles questions, and this one comes from a slightly different angle from Manuel Mack. If kept going into the season, so if Miles is, bra- is not traded by the start, what does he need to add to his game to make the front office think twice about trading him during the season? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I think he has to, A, shoot uh, with volume, without hesitancy, and with accuracy, which has been an issue for him in terms of actually keeping that up. Um and then he has to have that constant aggression to be willing and able to, it's not even a willingness thing. I think it's just the, like the way that he sees and reads the game. Like, like we talked about with that Washington game, it wasn't from him just like getting fed touches. It was him going out and finding them. He has to find that aggression. Like he has to find that um, those slots and those pockets and, and the right timing and angles to, to be so impactful as an offensive player that he, like he makes teams pay for not guarding him. Then again, like he has to be good enough to um, like, you know, quick with ball reversals um, capable of, you know, attacking off like a, a quick post or, or a quick um, like attack off the catch to, to be able to attack defenses that do start to cover him. Um, I think that would be my answer. My answer is slightly different because I think now if we know that Jalen Smith is the starting power forward and if Miles is coming back at the five, I'm less concerned about the shooting. I still think that Miles is going to be predominantly a pick and pop guy because he just, unless he alters what his reads are coming off of screens, he can just Mm -hmm. be somewhat of a magnet to popping. And that does make a difference if he's making those types of shots to a degree. Although I do think more and more teams in the pick and pop are reluctant to uh, shift the defender over in those situations. That's mainly what they're going to give up unless he's hitting that at a really high level. But for me, it's how much more is he going to roll? What pressure is he going to put on the defense in the role? And if he is doing that more significantly and defenses start to adjust, what does he do next? Because that's what we've never really seen. Like I said in the past, I can point to maybe three, four games last year where I can readily think of ways that teams made adjustments against him defensively. And then it would kind of like shut down what he's doing. Like they're playing the Chicago Bulls, DeMar DeRozan's defending him at the four. The Pacers are going to that pretty frequently rather than Sabonis and Vucevic in the drop. It's the fourth quarter and the Bulls are like, okay, probably need to put a stop to that. So they start fronting miles and he doesn't really know how to counter for that. Or, you know, even late in that Washington game, when he had 40 points, the Wizards start switching and then he doesn't really do anything about it. Like, I think the quintessential clip to explain like where my frustrations are with where his growth hasn't gone is what I put in that eight article when they're in Cleveland and they're running the boomerang set with picks on both sides of the floor and he gets the switch against Lamar Stevens and he adheres to the choreography that's given and literally points for Dwayne Washington to reverse it to the opposite side of the floor instead of using a quick swim move, recognizing this is where the advantage is. I have it and I'm going after it. Like you said, like over his seven year tenure in the NBA, there's just been very minimal progress in that particular area that kind of comes and goes. And like looking at it from Rick Carlisle's perspective, like, yes, he, he calls a lot of plays from the sidelines. They have a lot of sets, but I would still categorize him as a coach that wants to play flow game and wants to put, wants to have players out on the floor that yes, they can play within the set, but they can also 
readily find the advantage. And if I had to, if I had all three of Carlisle, Bjorkren, and Nate McMillan in a room right now, and we asked them, what was the rationale for all of you that in the fourth quarters, you wouldn't play Miles Turner a lot of the time and it was Sabonis, I would bet that's pretty high on the list. Like, he just doesn't have the same processing to be able to go find his own usage. And even if he is playing at the five, he still needs to recognize what the defense is doing and be able to show what he can do next. And then obviously, like, just, you know, the rebounding is going to have to get better. If he's out there at solo five, I think Jalen Smith will help to a degree. But, like, I don't think Jalen's a better rebounder than Sabonis. So um, that's that's going to have to tick up as well. That's a very basic thing to bring up. But And then, you know, if he does get a cross match, like if he is playing certain opponents that, you know, maybe for whatever reason they put a five on Jalen, like what would happen with that in the past, what's he going to do about that? Like, is, is he going to actively be showing improved post moves? Cause it feels like every summer we like going back to when he worked with Kevin McHale in the one summer on his rip moves, we're always seeing like film of him doing that, but we're never really seeing like consistent progress on what he can do against the switch. So I would point to all that, but then I would kind of reverse engineer this question to a degree and be like, okay, if miles playing with Tyrese and Rick Carlisle can work with him about getting him in different spots on the floor and maybe Miles's processing picks up and he addresses some of these issues and some of his off season training against switches pays off and he's shooting the three better and you know, everything comes together. Isn't that just going to give miles more options next off season? Like I would think that he's just going to have a bunch more suitors. And at that point, if I'm the front office, I'm probably still trading him because you can't play it out and risk that he walks. So mm-hmm. I just think that the likelihood, and maybe I'm completely off base here. I just think that the likelihood that Miles finishes next season in a Pacer uniform is is not very high. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I can't, I can't disagree with that. I think we're coming from the same stance for sure. Okay, so that concludes the Miles-related questions. We now go into the most other player that was asked about, which is everybody's favorite role player, O'Shea Brissett. So we have this question from, I'm guessing someone from Canada, um, at T Raptor Ball. What would you like to see O'Shea Brissett add to his game this off season? And then in conjunction with this, how big of a role do you envision for Andrew Nembhard? I'm guessing this is coming from people who want to this see their fellow Canadians Canadian do well. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, I think we, we've hit on O'Shea quite a bit to me it's the improving his, his game off the dribble and more more importantly the finishing off the dribble um because he had some really great flashes like he does all the things that like if you could combine O'Shea and like the the good parts saying good parts is unfair uh if you could combine the the parts of O'Shea with the parts of Miles and and make them one amalgamous player like that's like kind of the perfect player for this team in some ways um but uh, uh, yeah. So, I mean, like attacking, improving his, his, uh, um, his finishing off the triple is going to be the biggest thing that I'm looking for. Yeah, I would agree. So I looked up some numbers. He converted 38% of his drives per game last year, which ranked 125th out of the 129 players who average at least three drives per game. Um, we talked about it before. I think that when he goes off one foot, he jumps way too far away from the basket and everything becomes like a hanging bank shot rather than a layup. And he's constantly trying to finish around LinkedIn size. And I also think like last night when I was rewatching this, he could, he could use the best word I could use is he isn't the suavest with his Euro step either. Like he still draws contact with that rather than like using it to actually get around the defender and get back to the front of the basket. So 
all of that I think is, is a number one. Um, and I'd also like, I'm working on a very tedious project that is not about O'Shea, but something that I did notice while I was looking at other things is that I would like to see him play with his head up a little bit more too. Cause like going back to that thing that I just said about miles, like there was as disrespectful as the defense was, they were playing Boston. Sabonis wasn't on the floor and Josh Richardson of all people was checking miles, even though Robert Williams and Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown were playing and O'Shea's like at the top of the key going into like reverse delay and he's just playing with his head down and doesn't even see that like miles is right in front of the basket with Josh Richardson guarding him. And sometimes there was some plays like that too. Like even after the trade deadline where like Tyrese would be left alone and O'Shea wouldn't always recognize it. Like he can play drive and kick fairly successfully from the corners, but I think I would just like to see him play with his head up a little bit more. So then the Andrew Nemhard, the Andrew Nemhard part, um, how big of a role do you envision for him this season? Well, actually, one thing I want to hit on with. Uh, oh, sorry. With no, you're good. It's O'Shea, obviously, very different in in terms of handle, but kind of some of the same things that we want to see from Tari, right? In terms of like when we we covered him pre-draft. Yeah, I mean, I don't think but it's obviously different, but like in terms of like the in terms of having the head up more and and you know not getting caught as much in traffic. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, as for Nemhard, though, like. I think I, I don't want to fence it, but to me, it just depends what happens with TJ McConnell. Um, I think there's a real world where Andrew Nembhard is the backup point guard next year. Um, but that's only if TJ McConnell's off the roster. Cause frankly, TJ McConnell is a lot better right now. Um, but I, I do think too, like you really want to, if you drafting Nembhard uh, 31st overall, like you want to see him, get run like I don't I, I, they already signed him to a deal as well it's not like they're um just kind of playing with their food like uh I, I think it's pretty clear that they view him as somebody that they're interested in and, and want to see something from so I think that there's a real chance he plays as there's like the third guard next year yeah I think I would say that as well and I think what you said is accurate it depends on you know what they end up doing with TJ McConnell does Buddy get moved not that Nemhard and Buddy are going to play the same role but you know, they do have a lot of guards that are going to be occupying their backcourt minutes that are all six foot six and under. Um, But I do think judging based on the contract that they gave him and, you know, all the people saying this is one of the best contracts for like a second round pick basically ever, that pretty much communicates that the Pacers think fairly highly of him and are going to have him playing somewhere. Like if he's not getting minutes regularly with the Pacers in the beginning, depending upon where the rest of the roster shakes out, I would be absolutely shocked if he's not getting regular minutes with the Mad Ants at the very least. Um, or being around the team, like you're saying. It, I guess it depends on how they envision his development because there are other ways to develop players even if they aren't out there. So, you know, maybe he's playing a third string role and hopefully the Pacers don't continue to have the same injury problems that they've had the last several years. But if they do, um, I think that he will get his number called and we'll have minutes. Cause it just seems like they've spoken highly of him. I had some nitpicky things from summer league. I was a little bit surprised by what some of his ball security was. I wanted him to be his three point shot. I still think they're going to have to adjust his release point a little bit. And uh, I wanted him to be a little bit better looking for the pocket pass instead of always the skip with his left. But Overall, like they clearly, like I said, they clearly think a lot of him. So I think that he will have a role with the Pacers moving forward. Um, More O'Shea questions. With the current roster, can O'Shea play the majority of his minutes at the three? And what do you see as the positive slash negatives of that? And also like, because we've said this in the past, 
why do you view him more as a four than a three? Or maybe you don't. Maybe you're seeing as more of a three. I'll let you answer those however you want. That comes from a longtime listener, Jefferson Hasser, um, who engages with the pod a lot. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, shout out to Jeff. Um, I always enjoy his stuff. Um, I think I see him more as a four just kind of because of what we talked about. Like he, he showed a little bit more last year in terms of being able to toggle between the two. Um just because of his, his growth and his game off the dribble. Um, but again, I think it's mostly just like you're, you're talking about, like improving his, his – like he can make good reads off the live dribble, but again, it's more keeping set up, um, having the awareness. And also, yeah, like in terms of uh, if he's able to improve the actual finishing, I think that that changes his, it quite a bit um, in terms of not, not how he's going to get guarded necessarily, but I think it's more about the defense for me for why I view him as a four than a three. Um, like he's much more capable as an off ball roamer, um, than he is necessarily being somebody who's fighting over screens and, and playing at the point of attack. He's got kind of a high base. Um, I think that's another thing you want to see from him just overall, like improving his core strength and, and maybe lowering his, uh, his base a little bit and being able to, to hold up through contact on either end, I think is going to be one of the biggest things for him because he's like, he, he can, he's active at the point of attack, but he, he he's, especially against bigger wings, he can really struggle. So um, I think that that would be kind of my synopsis on why I view him as, as more of a four than a three at the moment. Yeah, his defensive role is very niche. He's very good at it, but you know he, he struggles to hold up on the perimeter at times, and the same can be said of him in the post against bigger fours as well. So it's like I always said, I just I think that his strengths are very similar to that of Robert Covington's and that I think he can be very good sliding sideline to sideline and making reads to pounce as the low man, um, fluttering around to provide extra help, taking charges at times, um, providing energy on defense, I think are all to his strengths. But I think that my answer too about, you know, why is he viewed as more of a Thor than a three? So there's this huge two game sample size. <laughs> that I think is somewhat informative here. So if we look past after the trade deadline at the first game where the Pacers really worked the Celtics and he had his 27 points and made the six threes or whatever it was, obviously a big part of that was just fueled by hot shooting to a certain degree. But if you look at the matchups from that game, he was defended by Robert Williams. Robert Williams was still healthy. Ijax was defended by Grant Williams. And then Tyrese Brogdon and Buddy were taking the assignments against Smart, Tatum, and Brown. So when he gets into that second quarter, he catches the Daniel Tice at the four minutes in addition to already being defended by Robert Williams as the starter. So the way the Boston systems works, they like to assign those guys to low usage wings, especially Robert Williams and let him roam. And O'Shea really took advantage of that. With that extra space, he had time to, you know, adjust his shot, get it up. And then also like the move we talked about in the past where he just completely like loses Daniel Tice in the corner, goes behind the back and gets to the rim. Um, I think a lot of that had to do with who was guarding him as and well as addition to O'Shea or I mean, in addition to just O'Shea himself. And we can see that in some other games as well. When he started at the three in Orlando, I thought there was times where he kind of struggled to do anything off the dribble against Okiki. Um, when they played the Sixers, I would rather he's being guarded by Tobias Harris than Matisse Thibel and sometimes even James Harden to a degree. So when they go and play the second game up in Boston, the Pacers started Terry Taylor and Goga in the front court and started O'Shea at the three and Robert Williams didn't play in that game, but Goga's guarding Al Horford or, or Al Horford's guarding Goga. Daniel Tice is guarding Terry Taylor and Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum are taking shifts against O'Shea. O'Shea goes four of 12, 33% from that field. 
and never attempted a shot inside the three-point line. So I think that it extends to both ends of the floor. I just like him better attacking a closeout against a four or a five or somebody who's sagging off of him versus a wing based on what, like he just doesn't, in addition to his finishing, he just doesn't play with a lot of pacing to, or the suaveness, like I said, with the Euro step to really handle guys that are more mobile defensively. And then what his role is defensively, I think just shakes out better to the four, but that's kind of the best crystallized example that I could give Jeff about why I think that. Um, another question that plays into this that comes from Ara Tazian. Um, he asks, I was incredibly high on future NBA starter potential of O'Shea after his first Pacer season, and I'm now quite low on that potential after his second year. Am I wrong now, or was I wrong before? Uh, on Goga? No, O'Shea. Oh, wow. I'm sorry. I, I, I misheard. Uh no, I, I, I kind of think that that's. I, I don't want to be unfair and say that's wrong, but I, I was really actually pretty impressed with O'Shea uh, this last year. I, I think, yeah, I think that O'Shea. I don't disagree with him, and that I guess I've never really been thinking that O'Shea should be a starter. My thoughts on O'Shea as a starter more so stemmed from my thoughts about if you need to boost Miles's trade value and you start O'Shea at the four, there's a better chance of Miles doing more five things and maybe that's more meaningful to other teams. I really don't enjoy looking at basketball through that lens. Like, mm-hmm. I do think that O'Shea's capable of doing more four things than Jalen at the current point in time, but you lose what Jalen does on the glass and you also would be losing... Um, just the overall size aspect. And like, that was one thing that when O'Shea was at the four that I should have brought up that like when they only had one big on the floor, no matter who it was, their defensive rating was pretty wretched. Like they just didn't have the same degree of secondary rim protection. And while O'Shea can like, fl- like I flutter around and do help, it's not the same as like, I think that Jalen offers a little bit more in that regard. So um, I guess my point would be like, I think O'Shea is really good and he could be like as a role player. And if he was on another team that was a good team, I think that he could carve into the rotation and maybe some of what he does would show up even more because he'd be able to fill in gaps around better players more easily. But I, I just, I don't see him long-term as a, as a starting four. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. Um, but I also think like if, let's say, if he made some strides this next year or two, I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility for him, but I agree with you. I think I view him much more as like, this is going to be the first forward off the bench who impacts winning at a high level and is just a very good role player. And I think that's a very useful player to have. And he should be viewed as a prospect just like anybody else on on the team. I agree. So that kind of ends the player specific questions. And now we're going to kind of go into lots of people kind of ask just overall for the Pacers going into next year. So Aiden Nakai, asks with the new look Pacers, where do you see them ranking in the standings this year? What's the ceiling? So last year, the only teams that finished worse than them were Orlando and Detroit. Um, I'll let you riff off of that. However you want to. Uh, I think again, this one just depends to me on does miles get traded. Um, is TJ McConnell still with the team? Um, what happens with buddy? Uh, like, not that I, I think like regardless, I don't think that this team would make the playoffs uh, or play in next year because clearly that's not their goal. If they do end up doing something like that, I would be pretty shocked. And also like, what are we doing here? Um, 
But to me, I don't think that this team is going to be the worst team in the NBA and be bottom. Like, I, I would imagine OKC really? is for sure. Well, I, I don't – yeah, I, I don't think – I mean, OKC is a lot. I'm just looking at the Eastern Conference. Oh, just in the Eastern Conference. Okay. Yeah. Uh, okay, I'm just – let me – I'm sifting through the oh yeah, this this is probably just about the worst team in the Eastern Conference. Um they'll be in a nice little competitive battle with Detroit. Um but even then, like I think Detroit has I wouldn't be surprised if Detroit had a better record than the Pacers. Yeah, Detroit Loki has better vets that make sense in their roles. And I think that they're kind of trying to take another step this year with Kate Cunningham. Um yeah. I mean, yeah, in terms of worst in the Eastern Conference, yeah, that's um them finishing 15th is not out of the question. And yeah, I would I, actually say it's more likely the answer than not. Yeah. I mean, cause if you look ahead at the teams that finished in front of them, everybody, but Orlando and Detroit, um, I can't pinpoint a lot that I think are like definite fallers. Um, I think it's possible very much so that, you know, if Brooklyn completely pivots and moves Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving, that they could be quite bad. Um, and I think that there is potential for Charlotte to maybe drop off a little bit from where they were last year as well. I mean, off the top of my head, I didn't really look at each individual team, but I wouldn't be surprised if Detroit had a better record than the Pacers. I mean, they could potentially be plucky and really surprise me. I do believe in, like, if I'm going to have, like, a hot take, like, I think that Tyrese Halliburton will be an all-star in his career at some point in time. How soon that happens is debatable. And it seems like, you know, I'm not saying he's going to be an all-star starter or something. And it seems like with reserves picks, a lot of times coaches value winning heavily and making those selections. But, you know, if, if Tyrese really takes a step forward and Matherin can continue to do some of the stuff that he did in summer league only, you know, at the NBA level and play off of Tyrese, you know, I, I don't think it's outside the realm of possibility that they could be plucky, but I'm not, expecting a major bump from where they were last year. Like even if, cause I mean, this goes into it. Somebody asked, have you watched Victor Vembinyama? And if yes, what are your thoughts on him? Respectively should Pacers do whatever it takes to have a shot at him, like trading miles and buddy for mostly draft capital, not modest role players. And I think to a certain degree, like, and this is not me trying to be dis- disrespectful to buddy and miles, but like buddy played well for the Pacers over the back end of last season. Like I, probably the best he's played since he got traded to the Kings just from a number standpoint. And they lost 10 straight games. Like even if buddy and miles are on this team, it's kind of like what we said at the end of the year. And like, I understand organizationally, I do not think that the Pacers were tanking. I think that they were okay with sitting people out. And if that led to losing, okay. But like they lost that game to Detroit in the fourth quarter when Detroit sat Isaiah Stewart, Sadiq Bay, um, Cade Cunningham did not even play Killian Hayes sat and like Carson Edwards who signed there like five hours before the game started and, uh, like several other players that weren't in their regular rotation at all. And they lost that fourth quarter with Tyrese and buddy and the Pacers, other regular starters out there. Like, I do think miles is an upgrade definitely at the five, especially defensively over the other options that they have, but like miles at solo five last year, wasn't completely reconciling what their defensive issues were either. So I don't know that even if those guys are on the team that I'm expecting them to be significantly better over what they were at the, at, after the trade deadline. Yeah. Um, one of the things I, as a, as a pivot off of this, um, where, where would you, if you had to guesstimate right now, which I know neither of us really like doing, where do you think they're going to finish in defensive rating next year? 
I think that it has potential to be better than what it was over the back end of last season. Oh, dear God, I would hope so. But yeah, well, I mean, yeah, like, I mean, yeah, because yeah. they were last after the trade deadline. But like, I think that they're going to go into next season with a, I hope that they're going to know who's going to be on the team, that they're going to have a simplified, concrete, this is what we do, this is what we're willing to give up, and that the identity is going to be clear, even if the execution isn't necessarily. If Miles is out there and Duarte's healthy and TJ McConnell is healthy, and like I'm not going to say that that completely would change their fortunes because I think that that was, like I don't want to say it was a lame excuse, but like to a degree there were some holes in that excuse because the defense started tapering off at the beginning of December long before any of those people even got hurt. But um, I think it's probably, I think the ceiling for the defense is probably like 20th. Yeah. That's what I was thinking. I would imagine they finished like somewhere in the mid twenties. I don't think they're going to be the worst defense in basketball because they are going, at least personnel wise, it's a little bit better this year, but yeah, it's going to be rough going at some point. Um, I mean, for most of the season, I mean, uh, so that'll be interesting to, to track and follow along with. Um, like, I guess as a final cap on this question for me, if things really hit right, I view them as like the 2020-2021 Pistons team. Like, they went 20-52, and 52, they finished 15th in the East, but they were like relatively competent, if we're being yeah. honest. Like, they were the best worst team I've ever seen play basketball. Uh, yes. Like they were in pretty much every game. They lose in the fourth quarter because they didn't really have a true closer, which that sounds hilarious when you put it into Pacers context. But um, yeah, like I think that that's a very viable way that this season goes. Yeah. I mean, do you think this was another one? This one comes from Michael. I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly. D Dominic um, is the number one pick the goal for next season. Yes, I think unequivocally, like I've said unequivocally so many times this podcast, but um, without question, like if if you're going into this and and or I guess, hold on, let me let me reframe this. I think the number one pick would be ideal. Uh, A top three ish pick is like I think if they don't come away with that, that would be pretty, pretty rough. But obviously the goal for this is whether it's via the draft or by coaxing it out of Tyrese Halliburton, they are trying to find the best player that this franchise ever drafted. Like, I think that that is the goal of this next season. Um, obviously you're not going to be regime. Okay. Maybe best player the team's ever drafted. So I want to put it. No, but no, I agree with like, your point. Yeah. Like this is, they are trying to find their, their guy for the next era of this franchise. And whether that's through, Tyrese becoming him or they find that guy with a, a top pick in the draft like that. That's the goal this, this year. That's why you take this year and, and do what they're doing because clearly they didn't have that and, and didn't view themselves as having that over the last couple of years. That's why they traded Domas. Um, that's why they went for Tyrese because they think he might be that guy. So I think to me, again, it's hedging a little bit, but that's kind of, that's, that's the goal for this next year in my view. Yeah. And I think a, a byproduct of that is just the idea that they're not going to keep skipping steps. Yeah, because um, I've, I've been asked that a little bit about like would they in offer sheet have been skipping a step I'm like I don't really think so because I don't think mm-hmm. that Aiton in and of himself as much as I like him as a player um, would have changed their fortunes to that degree in year one and I think that this year would have allowed him a lot of space to maybe experiment with some things that he wouldn't have had the leash to do with the Suns to a degree and I, I, I do know that some of that falls on Aiton as well not just Phoenix and what they were as a contender but um 
not skipping steps and no more being the plucky, you know, first round exit or trying to edge into the playoffs necessarily. Like I don't think, and I want to be clear, neither one of us is saying that the Pacers are going to go out and intentionally lose games. Um, Mm. That isn't going to be a thing, but if getting the number one pick is a product of trying to grow the roster and giving people space to play through mistakes and finding out exactly what Tyrese Halliburton can be, as we've said, then yeah. I mean, I think that they have positioned themselves to be very patient with this rebuild. And I think that that's what track they should have taken. So um, I guess I would answer it that way from here. I think that covers all of the Pacer specific questions. And we do have like just some questions about basketball in general that I think are pretty fun. If you want to get into that um, from some of our friends on the internet. So hopefully people are willing to stick with us and listen to some of these. Cause I think some of these are going to be pretty interesting. So um, this one comes from Tim E Ross, who also engages with the pod quite a bit and is a frequent uh, Good reply guy on Twitter. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, what's your process for understanding the effectiveness of an action? Like if you're assessing that's a good play type, what do you look at? Oh, wow. Can I have you answer that first? Cause I feel like you're gonna have a better answer than I do. Okay. So an example that I would give to Tim is if he wants to go back and look at it, I titled the piece, um, what one play call says about the Pacers. And at the beginning of the season, I had noticed one play and I'm like, wow, they get a really good shot out of that pretty much every time they run it. So I started when I was doing my rewatches, I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to start clipping these every time I see them run that. And I want to evaluate it and see, you know, how they're getting to these different options and whatnot. So in my head, when I go through, there's three questions that I would ask. Number one, does it fit who the team, like who you're running it for. Cause if I was coaching, that's the question that I would always ask first when I'm developing my playbook, it would be personnel based first. And then, you know, maybe there's some sets or some alignments that you work, but you're not making that work for your personnel. You're picking the personnel and then picking the alignments to go with that. And then next is, does it hold up against multiple coverages? So when I wrote that story, like just for people, I don't want to go into detail because it was somewhat of a complex play, but like basically, you know, if, if it's Malcolm Brogdon, he dribbles up the sideline and then the guy standing in that corner and the big that's trailing behind would effectively flip-flop places. So that wing comes to the top of the key and Brogdon would reverse the ball there. Then the next guy standing there would kind of ghost a flare screen that would draw some attentions away from that big. Then the big would reverse it further to the next guy. And when that ghost happens, it would automatically get reversed to that big into a step up screen on the opposite side of the floor. And what you saw from that is like every single player on the roster, their skill sets were being maximized. So like if it was miles at the top of the key and you're using that flare screen and slipping it, sometimes you would pull a defender away from him and he, and he could hit a three. Sometimes they would find that guy ghosting the flare screen and they could hit him there. Sometimes they would reverse it all the way back to the other side of the floor. And it would be Sabonis setting the step up screen. And then like it's Brogdon getting the ball back and being able to get to the rim. Or, you know, if they blitz that screen, when it got back, it'd be Sabonis catching it. And then you'd get like a two on one on the back side. Like, I know this probably sounds really complicated. If people want to go back and read the article, they can see it. But when I'm evaluating it, can it, can it hold up against blitzing? Can it hold up against drop? Can it hold up against switching? And you're still getting to your options. That's a pretty big one. And then lastly, like what's the spacing on the floor? Does the timing, can the timing hold up against that? And then what's your team's execution against it? That's mainly what I would look at. And then he kind of asked too, like, 
if they want a specific example, when it comes to screening, do you look first at the screener or the ball handler? I think it's a little bit of both. Again, like I would say, I evaluate the screener and what their recognition of the coverage is to a degree, because I don't think we always acknowledge that like, you know, what angle you're setting that screen, like if it is against a switch, and this is what I pointed out in my article about uh, summer league that Isaiah Jackson could be better at that Terry Taylor and Sabonis are very good at like coming up at an angle where you can screen the person's lower body screen below, stay below that switch, and then be able to get an overhead pass is a lot different than like setting the same screen you would always set at an angle where now the person's able to stay in front of you and potentially scram you out against that, which is an area where Isaiah Jackson could still grow. But to answer Tim's question, those are the three main things that I look at when I'm assessing, like, that's a really good play. Uh, I honestly don't have a ton to add to that because you're Caitlin Cooper and you know what you're talking about. So I, uh, I, I'm ready for the next one. Okay. So the next one comes from, my friend Bowser to Bowser, great, great Good follow yeah. on Twitter. Um, if you want to know more about basketball, I highly encourage you to follow him. And he created the basketball action dictionary. If you just want to know more about terminology, that's a great place to go. I really mm-hmm. like this question. So he says, as someone who knows ball, what are the most overrated and underrated aspects <laughs> of knowing ball? <laughs> um, I really like this question. I like this too. Uh, I think. I have, I have two answers here. Uh, my number one would be pick and roll. I think pick and roll is saying overrated. feels odd considering how big a part of the game it is. But also I think, especially more when just like talking about the, the draft and how we talk about prospects and look at things like a lot of people got frustrated in not seeing Jaden Ivey run pick and roll all the time at Purdue. And I, I thought it was a little bit overwrought. I was, you know, I, I think that there's a lot of value in, in seeing guys play in different contexts and doing different things that aren't just straight up pick and roll. Like I think, yes, pick and roll is important and you, you get a lot out of it in terms of seeing what somebody's passing reads are and, and how they react to a defense and uh, you know, what their feel can be. But also I think like it's important to see multiple contexts. And I just think like sometimes we make things way too much about pick and roll and pick and roll defense when there's a lot more going on. Um, well, it's obviously a very big part of the game, but I do think that it can be uh, oversimplified sometimes with that. And then my other answer would be uh, being definitive. Like, I don't know. Like, I I always hate being called an expert. Um, and I, I know you don't love that, that either. Like, I think to me, I'm just always trying to learn. Um, I, I think trying to learn is almost uh, saying it's underrated in basketball seems wrong, but I, I just, I, I think you can, you, it, being right is overrated. I'd almost say like, to me, I think I just want to, I want to learn more about the game. I want to enjoy the game. I want to talk to people who, who know more. That's why I love doing the podcast with you. Cause I learn so much from you every time we talk. And um, so, yeah, being, being right is overrated to me. It's, it's important to, to learn and find new ways to think and, and try and see the game from multiple different perspectives because there's not just one perspective that's right. I really like that. I like that we tackled this from different areas too because I thought about this a lot yesterday and I do agree. Like, I don't ever want to get to a place where I say that I do know ball because, yeah. and this is not me criticizing Bowser to Bowser at all because I think this is a terrific question. But like when I get to that place, I'm going to stop trying to learn more and understand it. And 
um, somebody was talking one day about like media and, and that we need more people that understand basketball sitting at sitting at desks and studio shows. And I don't completely disagree with that, but like, I do think that the more that I've come to understand the game over my lifetime, the more I realize how much I don't understand. And mm-hmm. I think that that's an important thing to, you know, not just to stay hungry, but to continue to want to grow and learn. But And taking off from that, here's what I would say is somewhat overrated about, you know, quote unquote, knowing the game is that to a degree, it's come at a loss of my fandom. So like my quest for the, like my quest for the why can, can be at the expense of living in the moment to a degree. Like an example, I would give an article that I never wrote (laughs) because I was like, that's way too far into Caitlin land. Like no one is going to care about that. So over time like if when I wrote the piece last summer about how Rick Carlisle's playbook would would fit with the Pacers and then I saw what they did in summer league and there was a lot of overlap between some of the plays that they ran in Dallas to what they were doing in summer league and then some that carried over with the Pacers Um, one of the most common ones they run is what we were talking about earlier where there's pick and rolls on both sides and the one guard throws it across the court and then that guard throws it back for them to get into their own screen, like in a boomerang action. The way that play starts when the first guard reverses it to the opposite side of the floor is that that guard comes off of Iverson. Two picks set at the elbows. Like, so if you're imagining the Dallas Mavericks are running this, like Luca would have the ball on the right side of the floor. Jalen Brunson would run across those picks to the left side of the floor. Luca would pass it to Jalen Brunson and he'd get like a dummy pick. And then Jalen Brunson would fire it back to the other side for Luca to kind of effectively attack second side, even though he's a primary option. And then of course you can make reads within that. But what I noticed as the season went on, and this is going to be the nerdiest thing anybody has ever heard, but is little by little, those stopped being like what I would describe as Iverson screens. Cause like an Iverson screen can be one at the elbow or it could be consecutive, but they're typically flat for the person to stand outside the free throw line and run in a straight line. And like, pretty shortly into the season, I started noticing they were becoming more like staggered Iverson screens. And I like wanted to write an article about, cause I started noticing other teams doing this too. And I wanted to be like, where are all the Iverson screens going? And like, why are we suddenly tilting this at a different angle where now the guy's running from the block up over across the screens instead of from the free throw lines. And I started noticing some benefits to it where like, because that tiny adjustment is there, defenses can't just sit on the top quite as easily. And if you need to run underneath, like against the top block, it's a little bit easier to do it at that angle from the block rather than straight from the free throw line. And then also like, it kind of allows you to do the stop and go. Like if, if you didn't quite get the guy on the first screen, you can kind of, you know, hesitate and then run off the rest of the way. And I like, for me in my head, that's kind of a cool thing, but like, I'm so in the weeds on it that it's like, okay, you just missed how Luka Doncic manipulated that screen and and how he got to the basket and what his last step is like. And, and so there's kind of a double-edged sword there that in a lot of ways, like it can, you can lose a degree of your fandom, but it can also enhance your fandom because you start to really understand exactly, you know, what degree the coaching staff goes to, to optimize these possessions and get people in the exact right places that they need to be. So Nuance can make you appreciate the high level detail of, you know, players performing at their highest levels, but it can also be a distraction from being in awe of their athletic feats as well. So 
I guess that's what I would say is overrated and underrated. Um, I'm guessing that Bowser to Bowser probably was thinking of that from a slightly different angle. And maybe that like you can get overly lost in terminology at times, which is something I probably do too. But um, I, I think that that's where I would go with it. That like the longer I've been in media and the longer that I've done this, like it probably happens to everybody, but you lose some of your fandom because you're so focused on looking for story angles and other things. And that can apply to just knowing basketball as well. Yeah. It's uh, so it's kind of funny. I don't mean this as a flex whatsoever, just more like, it's just kind of like one of those things that made me realize that I think I always try and um, try and like, I, I don't know, like on, on Sundays or, or Saturdays, uh, when I wake up in the morning and I know I just kind of have like a free day is the wrong way to put it. Cause like, I, I normally am pretty busy, but like I'll just pull up YouTube highlights of, um, of somebody that I really enjoyed watching when I was growing up. So I was like a big fan of combo forwards before it became in vogue to be a combo forward. Um, and like Wilson Chandler was like one of my favorite players growing up, especially like Nick's Wilson Chandler just dumped everything. I swear to God. And so I, I've posted Wilson Chandler highlights like once a month for like the last year or two. And uh, he followed me on Twitter the other day. And it just like made me think about like how, not that it's a weird space, but just like thinking about like, um, you know, not being a fan and just like being, uh, I think you and I are both pretty good at being professional. And um, like, it's just, it's, 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 it's an interesting dichotomy in thinking that stuff through. Like I, I try and be like, fan of the game because I can't really just be a fan of the team. Um, but I agree with you. It's, um, it has been weird. And I think it's part of the reason that like we've talked about it before, I've like turned down some offers to work more, um, like team related things, um, and going out and being, you know, doing scouting as well. And, uh, I think part of that's because I do, I do wonder like how much of, uh, if like it already is work for me, but I love doing it. But if I went and this was like, a, you know, you don't get to write about the art of screening. You know, you, you just have to go watch the Fort Wayne Mad Ants play every single game for this next month. Uh, I do wonder what, what my, my love for the game would be like. So it's a, it's always kind of an odd balancing act. Yeah. So from there, I kind of want to hold another one that we got from a friend of the pod till um, the last segment, but um, Emmanuel Teferi asked, um, what are your favorite ATOs you imagine getting increased usage this coming season? Wow. I'm going to let you answer this one first too. You're a lot better with the play terminology than I am. Right. So I don't know that I necessarily have specific terminology for this one, but the Pacers, like, I don't, know if Emmanuel is a Pacer fan (laughs) he might have just been asking more across the league at large but I'm gonna take it back to the Pacers but um the last game that the Pacers played in summer league against the Phoenix Suns was kind of a hard watch like I said I don't think we really need consolation games in Vegas I think we should probably just let teams go home but Mm -hmm. at the end of the second quarter they went to the same play a couple times in a row and I was like "Ooh, that's a pretty interesting one especially when you start imagining Um, some of the Pacers starters being in it. So like, if you can just imagine the geography of the court, um, it was Andrew Nemhard dribbling up the right side with Aaron Neesmith and um, Kendall Brown kind of standing in a vertical line outside of the free throw line. And then on the opposite side of the court, Terry Taylor and Gabe York were standing in a horizontal line along the baseline. So Aaron Neesmith immediately sets a ghost screen for Andrew Nemhard to just leak out to the opposite wing. And then Kendall Brown chases him with another subsequent screen. And 
at the same time, he kind of slips that and goes into the lane. And at the same time with Terry Taylor and Gabe York, Terry Taylor sets a screen in the corner for Gabe York to cut along the baseline to the opposite side. And then Terry follows him and sets a corner pin in to like tuck him into the corner. So if you can imagine this all at once, you're getting Aaron Neesmith floating into space at the left wing. You're getting Kendall Brown slipping or and or rolling to the basket kind of on a diagonal into the space that Terry Taylor and Gabe York are vacating. And you're also getting Gabe York in the corner. So Andrew Nemhard has all of those options around him. So basically like the two players are both flipping sides of the court while running actions for each other. And they didn't necessarily, I think the first time they got Gabe York in the corner and then the next time it was kind of bobbled. But like, if you're imagining that and it's Tyrese Halliburton with the ball and uh, Chris Duarte is the ghost screener leaking into space and you can get Benedict Matherin coming off the corner pin in and Jalen Brown is the person setting, or, I mean, Jalen Smith is the person setting the screens along the baseline and Isaiah Jackson is the roller. I like all those options a lot. And they ran that after a timeout um, in the second quarter. Um, there were some other ones that I liked from summer league as well, where there was a big at an elbow and I don't really know what big at the elbow is going to do this, but they were doing it with Shitu and they ran like flare action. That was a distraction kind of out of horns where they could then get Aaron Neesmith on a face cut. Um, but if we're just looking at the NBA at large, I feel like there's always like some little trendy action that like tons of teams start doing. And I was seeing this in the playoffs and summer league seem to be doing it as too. It's kind of like an inside reverse hook screen. So like if you're, you know, standing in the corner, you would come up and you turn the angle on a screen for a ball handler to come off two consecutive screens. So it kind of looks like pistol, but then you're getting surprised and kind of hooked into it. That's probably not a very good visual example, but I've seen a lot of teams doing that. So. Um, no, I know what you're, uh, yeah, I know what you're referencing. I like, I, I actually really enjoy that one too. In terms of just the pacers, like, like you kind of hit on it. I'm just excited for the verticality. Um, Cause we're not really accustomed to seeing that. And there, it's not just having hijacks, but there are multiple guys who I think you can, um, design some really interesting things in terms of what that gravity can can apply. So that'll be fun to fun to watch develop this season. Right, because I mean they even had a good one. They had a similar. Uh, they had some half court sets that they ran specifically to get Kendall Brown lobs in those summer league games as well. So that was fun. Um, last, like, kind of. Well, no, there's actually two more basketball related questions. Um, this person, I, I, strangely enough, there was a lot of questions from what looked like almost like burner accounts with no pictures. And this person's <laughs> Twitter account was another new account. If you had to guess what would be the next major shift in basketball offensively, we had the three point shooting revolution, and now we're seeing more and more versatile big men leading to an increase of positional basketball. What's next? Hmm. This is a very hard question. That is a very hard question. I thought about this for several hours last night. I'm not going to lie. Like it wasn't the only thing I was doing, but while I was doing other things, I was thinking about this. Well, it's funny because I, I think like the end kind of hits on that for me. Um, like we've started to see it, but I think we're really going to see it the next couple of years, just knowing who's coming in in the draft. Um, like there's, I just think it's going to be a, like there, there's always been this this trend over the last couple of years to really devalue bigs. And I think it's a lot less about like, oh, you can get a big off the scrap. You can be fine. It's like, okay, well, yeah, you can go sign somebody for the minimum. You can get your McGee on the MLE, but can you get somebody who can hang on the last five minutes of a game? And I think that's what's changing is getting like bigs who um, 
who grew up playing in the era post Steph Curry or during Steph Curry uh, his, and his run with the Warriors and, and seeing, you know, ball handling become something that is positionless and, and decision-making becomes something that's, uh, you know, across positions in terms of, you know, making live triple reads. That's what's changing. And I think we're starting to see that in these last couple of drafts. And now, especially moving forward, I think you're going to see a lot more of that. Not that I think it's going to be a, a massive sweeping change, but like you're getting to a point now where it's going to be, um, I'm just not very interested in hearing that. Well, why are you picking a big man here? I'm like, well, because if you have a big who can structurally change the game, um, or more importantly, doesn't need the game to be structurally changed, like that's huge. And I think that is the trend that we're going to continue to see over the next couple of years. I think somewhat too, that what I've noticed, and this isn't necessarily like the future, but just things that I've noticed in basketball in general is that you know, we're matching role to skill a lot more rather than to size. So Mm -hmm. like, you know, Terry Taylor, yeah, he's six foot five, but guess what? He's a really good role, man. So we're going to let him do that. And like, that's at a very low level because we're talking about a role, role player system type player, but like using guards more as screeners that actually roll to the basket and using bigs to do things that are more traditionally thought of as guards where like, you know, during the COVID portion of the season, we're literally seeing Sabonis bringing the ball up the court and coming off an inverted screen at the elbow, passing to the shake cut and then screening and diving again. Like just the overall diversity of what we're allowing people to do rather than it feels like in the past, maybe we've thought like, Oh, you are this size. Therefore you do this. Um, I think that we're going to continue to see a more increase of that, but I guess I kind of, again, like looked at this in a little bit of a backwards way because, you know, most of the time we're thinking of defense chasing offense, like there's offensive innovation and how is the defense going to adjust. So like, if I'm thinking of what the offense is going to do next, it's kind of like what's new in defense. So for me, and maybe you'll tell me I'm wrong, but like who, which team do you think has been the most defensively innovative here in the last couple of years in the NBA? Ooh. Oh, that's a good question. I think a lot of people will point at the Raptors, but I don't see that's who I'm going to pick. <laughs> yeah. You're going to pick the, you're going to pick the Raptors. You are going to pick the Raptors. My, well, I was trying to think in my head and I think, ah, yeah, it would probably would be the Raptors. Cause I was, I was trying to get cute, but I, yeah, it's probably the Raptors. Yeah. I mean, and I would defer to uh, the many, many great writers who cover the Raptors, but like, I think that they have somewhat been on the forefront of defensive innovation. And we did get a taste of that. It didn't work with what the Pacers roster was, but we did get a taste of that somewhat with Nate Bjorkren, although the systems are a little bit different in certain ways, but in terms of like, I feel like we kind of went to this place where like what this person is saying, like the three point revolution. And there became a place in time where teams like the Raptors um, somewhat degree to the Miami heat, though it's different, um, kind of decided that like, we don't have to fully react to that. Like the Raptors give up the highest three corner, three point frequency in the NBA and still put out a very competent defense. Like it's like, they're basically communicating and, and some of it's too, cause they, they don't currently have a center. So they have to fortify the paint in a different way. And they fortify the paint probably different than anybody. And that like, they start doing it at a very much higher pickup point so that you're never fully like collapsing their defense to get those types of paint touch threes. I mean, they have a lot of really long closeouts and the way that they close out is different too, but like their prioritization of lateral size and the way that they go in and out from the corners to defend and being willing to give that up is 
very different, I think, than what a lot of teams do, though there are some NBA teams that are starting to do it. Like I said, Miami does it, but in a slightly different way. And that you're almost kind of funneling shots to like lesser players. And like, just to put it in a pacer perspective, like we know what the Raptors did against DeMontis Sabonis every time they played him. Like there were moments when they would go up to Toronto where he didn't even have the ball and he would be seeing two, three defenders. And then as soon as he caught it, he'd be seeing that because they're basically kind of communicating like we're okay if the role player in the corner beats us. And that applies more so even to perimeter players where like they are going to aggressively fill the gaps, even if that means that they come off and they're going to, they just trust themselves that shots that even look open because of what their length is can still be contested shots. So if like operation six, nine that they have where they're, you know, playing these lineups where it's all just lanky people is going to be something that's going to like that type of ethos. If that takes on more so around the NBA, then it kind of becomes a question to me offensively of how do you counter that? Like if rim protection becomes more a function of rim deterrence and really locking down the ability and creating more congestion in that sense, and they're not going to care about certain types of shooters unless they're like really high elite level, you know, what do you do from there? So I think to a certain degree, like maybe this brings more out of like ball handling like somebody asked us another question of like would you increase the size of the court and I'm like no because I like the idea of there being congestion and that ball handling and that type of skill still really matters and looking for other offensive tactics to combat it without as much space is still a thing the push and pull between creating and shrinking space is still a thing and like what I said before about you know letting players do different types of stuff so maybe there's a space where we start to see the NBA starting to reclaim types of actions that have fallen out of favor. Like, I'm not going to say that the post isn't a thing at all anymore, but how can we use the post playing five out against a team like the Raptors, where when they're over rotating, maybe you can, you know, get post-ups cutting into that space where you can still play with size and you're not smaller than what their length is. And you're kind of reclaiming actions that teams aren't necessarily as used to defending while still doing it in a modern way, or maybe there becomes more of a shift back to offensive rebounding versus what transition defense was, because those types of scrambling defenses are going to be more apt to give up offensive rebounds. Like those are very small things, but that was just kind of some stuff that I brainstormed. And I'm sure that if anybody that covers the Raptors is listening to that, they're probably thinking like, that's not what we do. And what are you talking about? But like, that's, like, I just kind of feel like they're the team defensively that has tried some of the most new things. Cause like even Miami, I guess like two like another defensive innovation. And I wrote about this last summer is we're seeing more and more that like, rather than shrinking space by playing into the elbows and the blocks, we're shrinking space by playing above our checks. So like a lot of times in the playoffs, the heat were lifted into shift position above those checks. And that's how they played off the corners. And sometimes they play off the corners in the zone a little bit different too. So like, how are you combating that shrinking space is coming from lifting you further back in terms of how you get into your actions? And, you know, what does that mean for the overall movement of what you're doing as well? But that probably sounded like a lot of word salad, but that was a very complex question. And to answer another new quants question, if the two of us, knew the answer to that we'd probably be working in a front office right now like i don't fully know the answer to that but that was just some things that popped off my head but a fun last question from this segment um who are some of the most underrated role players in the nba right now 
Oh, I love this question. Uh, I sh- should have prepped myself for this one. I know, um, because like thinking of it <laughs> off the top of your head is hard. Because I didn't look at this until right when we hopped on. Wow. Okay. I I'll start with. I might I might reframe this a little bit and say guys who I think are going to ta- be very important role players next year. Um, Jalen Noel in Minnesota is not going to be like the typical name. I think you're going to hear for this, but he's somebody I would throw at the wall in terms of somebody who I think is going to be a really pivotal role player across the league next year. And granted, like a role player is not going to totally shift what a team is or isn't, but I think he could be really important. Um, so for a team that really lacks rim pressure, like I, if I, if I remember correctly, Anthony Edwards was like near the bottom in terms of rim attempts last year, uh, regarding usage and, and same for D'Angelo Russell, but Jalen Noel, like pretty expertly blends the ability to pull up, make pick and roll reads while also getting to the rim. And he's like, just a really crafty finisher who finishes well, despite being pretty below the rim. Um, that's somebody I would look at. Like he had a very odd role last year because of uh, all the injuries and fluctuation that that team went through, but he's somebody who, who ended up getting guaranteed money that I think will be pretty exciting for them. Um, I think he started to get more love last year too, but Dorian Finney-Smith has to be on this list. Like his continual growth that he's made since he came out of Florida has been pretty wild to me. Um, like originally came in, was a very poor shooter, was a very poor finisher and has developed into somebody who can actually like pretty capably run some secondary actions is a, is a good enough shooter now that the defense is, that defense has to care um, is good attacking closeouts. Um, and it's just a very good defender. I wouldn't call him a, an all defense level guy. Um, I don't think that he's quite that level, but he's, he's just very good all around and has developed into somebody who actually has to be accounted for on both ends. And that's, that's pretty meaningful considering what, the, what he, what he was coming in. I, I believe he was undrafted if I remember correctly. Um, that's been very fun for me to watch. Uh, I'm trying to think of some other names. Do you have any that you want to throw out? Yeah, I mean, like I said, I gave very little thought to this. This is from Carrie Dunn. It was a very good question. I appreciate her for sending it. Um, it got a little bit lost in the shuffle when I was curating all the questions. And the word underrated is the one that sticks with me because I think we can all like pinpoint specific role players that make a difference on teams. But like mm-hmm. underrated to me is like you gotta like you gotta be the hipster in the know that knows that like Terry Taylor on a two-way contract yes. is doing stuff. So like Amir coffee on a two-way contract yes. for the Clippers was yes. like doing stuff. Like um, they used him in a lot of different positions, including like at the G league level. Like I think at times they were even trying him at point guard. He come in and play various positions. Like the two games that he played against the Pacers, I was pretty impressed even with like some of his ball skills, obviously shot the three pretty well for them. And it's kind of sad for me because he's probably going to remain underrated because he re-signed that deal with the Clippers. And I don't entirely know where his minutes are going to come from once that roster full of, of wings is fully healthy, but um, he was kind of fun. And some of the Clipper games that I watched last year, I don't really know how we all view what the word role player is, but a couple others that I enjoy um, Jaden McDaniels. I don't know that we would yes. necessarily call him a role player, but I really like, he had some of the defensive possessions last year, like that I clipped just because like, I want to go back and look at that. That was so impressive that, you know, he can practically guard. Like, I'm not saying he's a switch one through five guy, but there were possessions where it felt like he in the shadows was guarding like the entire team. Like one possession I remember vividly that I watched Minnesota play against the Mavericks when 
he like went from defending Jalen Brunson to switching off to providing weak side rim protection two or three different times to scramming out a mismatch and then um, helping Carl Anthony Towns be able to also being very communicative. And I also like some of the stuff that he does, like in the early portion of the year, it was like a wonder if you ever saw him kind of do anything besides like just stand in the corner and occasionally hit a three. And by the end of the year, when we're watching those playing games, like he's very sneaky with some of the slips that he'll make that opens up other stuff for the team. And he also started doing a little bit more off the dribble. Uh, I think he's a really fun player. And like, just the idea that he can, you know, practically look like Jack Skellington and, and really hold up functionally strength wise against yeah, guys his functional like, strength is insane. Like, like it might against, be the best in the league. Yeah. Against guys like Julius Randall and like really make life hard on him. That game that I watched Minnesota play New York was really fun. And then one other player that, I just enjoy is Isaiah Stewart up in Detroit. Like I know mm-hmm. that he's probably not like a starting five. And I think that it will be somewhat of a weird dynamic for him to be at the four, though he did make some threes in summer league, but like he just does a lot of little small things that you can write about a role player that it's like, Hey, that was really smart. And then the strides that he made being able to switch out in isolation, as well as like knowing when to screen his own man and uh, just his overall screening technique, I think is really good too. So that's just another guy that I enjoy yeah. watching. The last player I would throw out Josh Hart. I I love Josh Hart. I think he's, he's one of my favorite, probably top 10 players in the league to watch. Um, I think it's underrated is where it becomes sticky. Like I, I guess you could say that he was, uh, I mean, it's weird because last year he was, he was on the Pels before they started at their real stride. Um, and was on a Portland team that was, uh, let's just say the Portland team after the new year was one of the worst NBA rosters I think I've ever seen. Um, once they started shutting guys down, uh, but he went from somebody who before last year was like pretty borderline as actually being a starting level player. The shot wasn't super there. His handle wasn't very tight. And last year his handle was better. He found some real pacing and rhythm and became like he ran more pick and rolls in the first 30 games of the season than I think he had in the last two seasons combined. Uh, Like he's really not a pull up shooter. He shouldn't be expected to do that much this next year, but he's just a very fun player who can fit into a variety of roles. A good defender, one of the best rebounders pound for pound in the NBA. Um, just a very fun player. I love watching him play. It was cool seeing him make those strides last year. And uh, I, what he, he had like, what if I think he had like a 40, 40 point game when he was in Portland. Um, so it's just, you know, like little things like that. He's going to be in a smaller role this year, but very fun to watch. Yeah. I enjoyed this question, Carrie. Thanks for sending yeah, that thank one you for in. Sending I that liked, in. I liked that we all, we both picked completely different players. Um, so the last segment that we'll get into here is these are just kind of more personal questions. And like you and I talk for probably, you know, however many hours a week, but I don't know some of this stuff about you. So this should be interesting to get into. Um, I'm excited. Friend of the pod, Ben Thrifty, who came on and was nice enough to share his wonderful insights about Jeremy Sohan when we did that preview pod, sent this question. And this was one of my favorite ones that got asked. Um, the memory that best explains why you love basketball. Oh, wow. Oh, I like this. Um, yes, it's a great question. Yeah. So for me, I think I have, I have two. Um, number one, like the first time that I really sat down and watched a basketball game was in, I believe it was 2013. Was 2013 the year that PG dunked on Birdman? I think it was 2013. Yeah. 
Yeah, so it was that. That was the first game I'd ever I ever really chose to sit down and watch was when the Indiana Pacers were playing the Miami Heat in the Eastern Conference Finals and Paul George dunked on Birdman. And uh, I really didn't understand the game, but I could understand watching Paul George play basketball and be like, oh, wow, this guy is really good and he's going to keep getting better. And, um, you know, watching that team play defense, again, I didn't really understand it, but, like, you could just tell, like, the the intensity of that series was so fun to watch. Um, and I think for me, that was kind of, like, my real in- introduction to basketball. Which to me makes me sad sometimes. Knowing like I grew up in Cleveland, I went to a bunch of Cavs games when I was a kid. I just didn't understand how good LeBron was growing up, and I kind of wish I'd been able to apply that more. But I think to me that's like one that really sits for me. And um, the biggest one, though, um, I think would have to just be as just a memory in general is. Um, so I went from trying to be a professional athlete myself, and that of course did not work out. Um, I had a pretty significant. Uh, just say issues pop up, uh, mostly predicated on a hard injury that, that made me kind of just, I couldn't work out. I couldn't, I couldn't weight lift. I couldn't do anything. Um, and I was going from someone who was, you know, working out every, you know, two or three times a day, uh, for, for boxing. And I went from that to just trying to figure out, you know, what am I doing in my life? Who am I? And, uh, not to get like too overly deep, but then I, uh, so I, I was kind of just on my couch a lot and, I started watching basketball all the time. I went from somebody who, you know, would watch a game a couple of times a week to somebody who was watching three or four games a night and just trying to understand the sport better. And um, I think for me, I I went from somebody who had never, um, it was always really difficult for me to enjoy sports, you know, whether it was something I was playing growing up or when I was getting really serious with, with competitive fighting, I, uh, it was never fun for me. I, I really struggled with pressure um, I didn't know how to, how to enjoy things. I think practice was just kind of like my sanctuary in some ways. Like I was just there to get away from all the things that were going on in my life, honestly. And I think basketball for me, watching games on league pass for the first time, uh, was like the first time that I really just was able to enjoy the sport that I didn't have to take seriously. And, um, and I think that's how I always try and approach basketball now. Like, yeah, there's a lot to analyze, but it's fun there's personality in it that I love. And um, I never want to lose that because I mean, honestly, in some ways, like, again, not to get like overly done, but basketball like has changed my life for the better. I can't really imagine my life without it. So yeah, that's, uh, that's where I'll go with that. I really like that. I like getting to know you better. That was, I appreciate you sharing all that. Thanks Caitlin. So mine, (laughs) I'm going to try not to get too deep with this one. I really am. uh, We like the depth Um, here. Um, mine to say the memory that best explains why you love basketball. I think people would have to understand that there was probably about a two year span before I stopped playing where, um, I wouldn't say I actively disliked it, but I had lost most of the joy in it. And I won't get into what all the reasons for that was, but it became very unpleasant. So, There were times where I was obviously playing in the girls program and my dad was coaching in the boys and he would always let me tag along. Like he would have open gyms and sometimes they'd be really early in the morning. And so he would have to go over there and open up the gym and get everything ready. And like back then the gym didn't have um, goals where you just turn the key and put them down. Like you had to go get a drill and, and wind them down. And 
turn the lights on. And like the one thing that stood out about our high school gym is it's kind of like in a hangar setting. And when you turn the lights on, it would take a very long time for them all to turn on. But even when they were off, there was one light that um, would stay on above the main goal. So it was kind of metaphorical in a sense, because while my dad was getting everything ready, he would give me time just to shoot around or do whatever I wanted to do before everybody came in for practice. And that was a really seminal moment in how I was feeling about basketball, because like the rest of the gym is dark, but there's this one light on the goal where I could remember why I loved the sport in the first place. And it was just about me. Um, it's just about me and getting to work on what I wanted to work on and connecting back to the freedom and the empowerment that you can feel when you're playing basketball. And it helped me to remember that, like, I knew pretty well that I wasn't going to be continuing playing anymore at that point in time, again, for reasons mm-hmm. that I won't get into, but um, it, it helped me reconnect with the sport. And I'm always going to have fond memories of that. And when I really think about it, too, my dad and I never had a player coach relationship. We never wanted that. He didn't coach me. Um, at any level at any point in time um, we just never wanted that type of a dynamic but he was there so I think that there's like definitely this familial aspect as well like the first game like you mentioned watching Paul George kind of the first game and I was very young when this happened but the first game I can remember watching I was at my grandparents house and we were watching the Pacers Nets game five in 2002 when Reggie Miller forced overtime with like the epic dunk and like as much, game. Yeah, as much as I was watching that game and I have memories of it, like I was so young. I just remember like my dad's reaction to it. And I remember the first games that we went to at, at the time was Conseco Fieldhouse and seeing like the Pacers in action. So the Pacers were always a big part of it for me as well. But like even going through that and me transitioning from, okay, I'm a player and now I'm not a player anymore. And like this part of my identity isn't really there anymore. And and where do I go from here? And me still wanting to be connected to the sport. So I started seeing the sport a lot more through my dad's program and being around other coaches throughout the state and seeing it from a much more coaching perspective than like what I was trying to work on to improve, to be a player. So I think that that's shaped a lot of what I've done media wise. And even now, like, obviously, you know, I'm an adult now, my dad has his own life. Um, He does some media broadcasting of high school games. Now he's no longer coaching, but like just being able to talk to him sometimes about like, Hey, did you watch that? you know, that Suns game the other night, or did you watch the Spurs or did you watch when the Pacers did X or like, we don't have as detailed of conversations as we once did, but there's definitely this familial aspect where I really came into thinking that like, you know, that relationship is a big part of it for me. Cause I hear other people talk about basketball and they'll talk about like the connections are so big for them. And like, for me as a player and for me, even in media now, like I don't have a lot of connections with other people. Like a lot of it is isolationist, even going back to that memory of me being in that empty gym and just working on my game. So my relationship with my dad's a really big part of it. And like, that's what I would share. So this got probably a lot more emo than people were hoping for, but um, they can probably understand me a little bit better and understand where some of my writing perspective comes from and knowing that. I love that. We can, uh, I can thread, uh, I can thread like some, some My Chemical Romance in the background that doesn't drown us out, but uh, if it's the mood, <laughs> but no, um, it's cool. I, I would, again, I like getting to know more about you too. And um, it's good. I think people can, people like us. So I think it, it helps uh, to give them some background too. So that's, that was cool. So another personal question, which I answered this one on Twitter, but I'll let you answer it as well. Um, 
just stuff about us. Do you have any current goals from a media standpoint for next year? Hmm. I am not sure to be completely honest. I think I'm in a, somebody actually wanted to talk to you about off call, but I guess we can do right now. I, I, I've, I don't know. It's been a weird, uh, it's been a weird couple of weeks where I, uh, I'm just not really sure where I'm at uh, with like, I, I don't know, like I know that I'm doing cool things, but it's hard to feel like, um, like you're making an impact sometimes. And I, I guess that sounds kind of cheesy or corny or whatever, but I just, uh, sometimes I like, I don't know, like I, I was in the airport the other day um, when I got to Connecticut and I, sat down like Liz Cambage and announced that she wasn't going to be with, uh, with the Sparks anymore. And all the, the, all the immediate thing I thought about was, ah, I don't really care about this. Like, I want to, I want to write about, you know, what is, what does the Sparks front court look like with Shanae Bumake and, and Olivia Nelson, who was a rookie um, that showed some really promising things. Like, what do they bring? What should you be excited about? What am I excited about? Like, um, and I sat there and did that for like two hours in the middle of the airport when I could have just gone to my hotel and, I like immediately got done writing and like hit send. And I had some people hit me up and be like, oh, this is cool. Like I really enjoy this. But I was also like, what the fuck did I do that for? You know, like have you ever had that feeling where you just kind of spend a whole ton of time writing something? And I'm just like, did it what else could I have been doing in those hours? You know, it was uh and not that I would take it back. Like I I enjoy I enjoy what I do heavily, but I uh I think about that a lot recently and especially too because i have to um i'm kind of hitting a point where i have to start honing in on what i am going to do in basketball because i've had some more things pop up that are still on on the radar for um for getting into maybe basketball ops or um working in scouting departments um but i've also had some some potential media things pop up that i uh i'm looking at and uh i don't know i'm not really sure where i'm at with it i'm i'm I, it's uh it's a little daunting trying to figure it out um but yeah i'm sorry that was, that was a big tangent but um yeah yeah i mean i think my answer that i provided on twitter was basically like i think having goals is good but for me personally like I'm just going to fully invest myself in whatever I'm doing. And that's kind of been my, my approach to the entirety of when I've done this. Like if I start looking at what I want to be doing or what everyone else is doing or what opportunities are coming or aren't coming, it will take away from what work I'm currently doing. And I guess I feel like if I do the best possible quality that I hope that, you know, when people listen to this podcast or they read wherever my stuff is being published at, that those opportunities are going to come naturally as a byproduct of that. And if they don't, then that's somewhat on me. And then you kind of have to reevaluate what you're doing. So yeah, like I think from a media standpoint, you know, it, it can feel like, I mean, especially this past season, and this isn't like me blaming the Pacers or something, but like when the fan base is, you know, as apathetic as what was, and again, not blaming the fan base for that, given what the state of the team was for a large portion of the season, it can just feel like you're shouting into a tunnel. Like you can work. I mean, I'm honest enough to say a lot of the pieces that I write, sometimes those are like, can be weeks maybe even a month in a making like the idea of the one that i wrote before like i'm going to track every single time they run that play like you're doing that over weeks you're cutting it you're analyzing it you're trying to put it into a digestible form you're hoping that it's readable and you're hoping that people are going to click that link and hopefully share it and that other people are going to read it and then you know within a few hours or a few days 
like the eight and piece was up and live that I did a week ago for like an hour and a half. And it's like, okay, well that's over. Like most of what we do doesn't have a very long shelf life. So you have to evaluate like, you know, where you're, I think this past season, a lot for me was just a place of worrying less about what I can't control and coming to a place where asking myself, are you proud of what you're putting out? Like, do you find, you know, that interesting and hoping from it from that standpoint because and you know I think it's good too like I took some breaks from social media I wasn't on there anymore and I don't regret that because like sometimes it can be like you finding too much meaning just in that and I don't ever want to get to a place where that's kind of where I assess my value at but again this was a very deep conversation from both of us that you know (laughs) may or may not be of interest to anyone who's still listening at this point I think it's of interest um but in terms of just like hitting on on actual goals, I guess I didn't answer that part. Um, I think I look at it the same way as you. Like I, I don't know. I really want to put my all into everything I'm doing. I don't like putting things out that are, are rushed, um, which I think has been saying a struggle would be the wrong way to put it. But like this summer, I think I've written more over the last couple months than I, I really anticipated. Um, and it's been good. Like I've really enjoyed getting to do what I do, what I do, but I think in some ways I kind of would like to be able to watch less. Um, I mean, to not watch, I, I want to watch more. Like I, I still watch a lot. Um, but the amount of content I've had to put out just for work and to make it, to make it work. Like, again, I'm lucky to do what I do, but, um, having a full-time job that makes it a little bit easier because just for people who aren't aware, like you write a lot more doing things freelance and trying to make that full-time than, than doing a full-time job. I guess it depends on the job, but like based on, you know, like knowing people in some of the higher up positions, like, yeah. Um, and I want to be able to, to just not feel like I have to write something every day sometimes uh, would be, would be cool. Cause I, I just like getting to sit down and watch things. Like, like I want to watch a lot more historical basketball and, and like, that's the kind of stuff I really enjoy just kind of getting to be all encompassing. And I just love the game. And I think to me, my goal is to never stop loving the game and never have it come across in my work that I don't love the game. Because to me, that would be just like getting back into boxing. Um, again, not to get too deep, but like, I never want to lose that. Um, so whatever I'm doing in basketball, I, I don't really know what my goals are but all I know is that I want to love the game and, and advocate that because I think that there's too many people who don't. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. And I think a big part of it too, like at least from my standpoint and a lot of the questions that I get asked is like, I would rather, and this is not at all me putting down anybody and what I'm about to say, like, because I'm so impressed by people that can cover, you know, the entirety of the NBA as well as the draft year round. Like that's, an impressive feat that I have even more respect for after we did, you know, our stock up stock down pods. But like, I am in a position where I would rather know a lot about one thing than a little about a lot of things. And that's what it would be for me. I'm not saying that's what it is for other people that cover all of it, but that's what it would be for me knowing a little about a lot of things. And, you know, so, and two, I will admit that like being a woman doing this space, I do feel very cognizant of what projects I take on and knowing that like, how many chances will I get? Like if I go on something and I don't fully know the subject matter to the degree that I feel that I know about what the Pacers are doing is, am I going to suddenly be seen as like the token invite that got there and didn't have enough information and background. So some -hmm. of those questions I get asked a lot and that's where it comes from. Like, and that's why I'm going to go as hard and fully invest myself in what 
um, things that I feel comfortable with. So to a degree, like with the goals, if that types of offers come, it also needs to be an offer that like, I feel that what I'm doing is going to be best for that outlet as well, because I take a lot of, you know, responsibility and and what I produce for the places that I'm going to work for. And I want them to get the best possible product. So, and it, I think that the writing is generally better when it's something that you're interested in. And that's how I'm always going to feel like I, again, this is something that I have a lot of respect for people who are more into the transaction market and the salary cap and other stuff. That isn't me. So if I'm writing it, it's not going to be as good as where you could get that stuff from other people. And I'm not going to be as invested in it. And I don't think that the writing and the actual content that I'm putting out, I don't want to waste people's time. I want them to know that if they come to my account and I've taken time to put out a link that they're going to read and click that, you know, I'm putting my most into that and that I don't want them to feel like they've wasted their time reading it. So um, that's just a little bit more of it from my perspective as well. But um, we did have a question from Josh. I think it's Josh Hill, which we both have kind of already answered. Um, did you previously play basketball and have you coached basketball before? Wow. Yeah. So I had only played basketball um, in, a, in just like a recreational setting. Like uh, I've definitely, trust me, I've played competitive games and gotten dog for it. Uh, I wore a Paul George jersey uh, to to the blacktop. Yeah, you are. I, I heard you make a sound already. Uh, I wore a Paul George jersey to the blacktop one time when I was like 16. And that's the biggest mistake I've ever made in my life. Um, yeah, don't do not wear basketball player jerseys to uh, to the blacktop. I'm sure most of you already knew that. Uh, I learned the hard way. Um, but no, I was a. Uh, it was just always fun for me. I shoot around all the time. Um, I can't really shoot anymore because I, unfortunately, like I'm pretty sure I have a torn labrum. Um, so I can't really shoot because it's in my shooting arm. Um, but I can't play defense. So that's fun. But yeah, no, I've thought about coaching. Um, again, I've had like some stuff pop up that would lead more towards that and doing player development stuff. But uh, I, uh, I've i always been a little bit hesitant to get into it just because I wonder how my relationship to the game will change. But um I thought about it for sure. I, as I described earlier, I did play basketball for a lot of years. I would say that was probably, you know, the biggest part of my life, at least, you know, outside of family and, and, you know, spirituality and other stuff when I was growing up was basketball. I was always in gym somewhere, whether that was my own games, my dad's games, scouting games. Like I'm not exaggerating when I say there was probably years when I was growing up or even into my early twenties where I, probably saw 50 to 60 high school games per year that I was in gyms for, um, during the regular season. So I did not play anymore after I stopped playing when I was 16, I had reasons for that. Um, and I think sometimes in life, everything happens for a reason. I was telling somebody this the other day that if I hadn't stopped playing, I wouldn't have been around my dad's program as more as much. I wouldn't have had the same degree of time. Cause obviously I would have been at practices, of my own, my own games and whatnot in the summertime as well. So that exposed me and helped me grow my knowledge of basketball, just being exposed to a lot of different coaches. Like, I mean, a lot of people were, let's be honest, they weren't going to engage with, with me as like, you know, a preteen daughter of my dad at a game, but I could sit there and listen to what they were talking about and absorb a lot of information. So that helped. And then I also had to focus really heavily on academics because I needed to have an academic scholarship in order to go to college. And all of that's kind of combined and, and led me back to the place of what I do now to a degree. So 
Um, there's that, but to be honest, like if I'm just being frank with everybody, I did not continue playing anymore after that was over. Um, that's not really an active part of my life. Um, and it took me a long time just to get back to feeling good about what I do here, but, and coaching basketball, I did not coach basketball. Um, my dad had a very good relationship with coaching. He ended that on his own terms and decided that he was ready to be done with it. But after having seen him do it, I know how difficult that is. And I know how much more coaching is about, um, relationships and how you interact with various players as much as it is about what your actual knowledge of basketball is. So, um, I enjoy very much being able to sit and analyze film and, and watch and compare what various teams do, but I don't think that I would ever want to be in a lead coaching chair um, based on those experiences. So that's how I would answer the, that question. I think we have, we've entered into the fun part of the program where our last thing that we can close out on this very, very long podcast is I apologize, Mark, but a lot of people want to know about the outshine popsicle incident that <laughs> happened um, a week ago. And I just want to put it out there because when I had shared my thread of the popsicles and then Kevin Pritchard, who, who knows, maybe this will put him in contention for executive of the year next year said that he's addicted to popsicles. I had so many people DMing me and sending me tweets on Twitter, and I just want to shoot down the rumors. There was not a conspiracy theory involved there. I think it was just two people, like, may have seen the pictures of the popsicles and thought those look good. I don't know, but it's just two people that have impeccable taste in frozen snacks. So we can put all of that to rest. Um, the outshine story, I won't go into great detail on, but I basically like had written the eight story. It was a very long week, a lot of projects. And we've been doing this podcast long enough where people have asked me, like, have you tried this one yet? Have you tried that one yet? And I was like, you know what? I have literally this entire weekend open other than watching the Pacers summer league games. And I'm just going to drive and go get those things. And the one that I had to drive to go get was 50 miles one way to get to one flavor. <laughs> and that wasn't oh my gosh. like, just to put it out there, that wasn't, I waited until there was something else that I needed to get from that general vicinity. So it wasn't just me spending a ton of money on gas just to go get a popsicle, but it was, it was a part of the trip of why I went. So that particular flavor, that was the watermelon they don't sell that around where I live. I actually had to use like a store locator. I'm not purporting any of this to be a cool thing. I don't think that I'm cool because I took a 50 mile trip one way to get watermelon popsicles, but it's just the truth of what happened. And it was also raining and I got completely soaked and then couldn't find a place where the peach ones were and was running around looking at various grocery stores only to find out that a place five minutes from my house had the peach ones. So I have now tried all of the flavors. So people want me to power rank them. Are you amenable to this process? Yeah, definitely. Okay. So we're going to go from the bottom to the top. And I just want to say before we get into this, that the outshine, there are no losers. There's, there's only winners here. (laughs) So mine's not in your top five. I will be pretty displeased, but it's not in the top five. I'll just put that out there. You haven't tried them all. So you don't know the wonder that is some of these that all I need is the lime. The lime is so good. Well, I I could have said the same thing about the strawberry, but so my least favorite one, and again, no losers, but I would put the tangerine last mainly because I just don't like tangerines that much. I think if it was just plain orange, like a regular orange or blood orange, 
I would have liked it a lot better. The tangerine was just a little bit too sweet for me. And that kind of feeds into what a lot of my rankings are here. So tangerine is last next up after I drove 50 miles to get it is the watermelon. That was like a brunch popsicle that I had on a Sunday morning outside and it was raining. So maybe that tainted some of my feelings, but of all of the outshine ones, the thing that the reason I love outshine so much is because they don't taste artificial. They, they are made with real fruit. Sometimes they have chunks of the fruit in them. The watermelon, I didn't feel, I felt like it had like watermelon flavor to it. So that's why that one has to come in second to last. Next up is the lime. I apologize, Mark. The lime is just kind of intense. And by comparison to the other options, it's fine. I like it. It's refreshing. Like I certainly wouldn't turn a lime one down, but it's, it's not one of my favorite ones. That's next, nice. next up, raspberry. Um, the raspberry, like the tangerine, I feel is is a bit sweet. I like raspberries in and of themselves, but like the raspberries only come in the pop, I think. They don't come in the fruit bar, which is probably a good thing because I think the fruit bar would be way too much. Um, then next up, I would pick the creamy coconut. Have you had the coconut? I have not, but it, okay. it's something I would like to try. The creamy coconut is very unexpected, Mark. Like... When I took the first bite of that, and yes, I bite popsicles. I do not lick a popsicle. Um, I was expecting like almost like a coconut water taste, but like it was, it was basically a dessert popsicle. If I'm being honest, like it had kind of the texture of like an ice cream bar with actual pieces of coconut in it. I really liked it. My only drawback would be because it is comes in the fruit bar. Like I would have liked it. It was about two thirds of the size. Like when I had about an inch left to go, I was kind of like, mm, this is getting a bit sweet again. This is a bit much, but the creamy coconut is good. Like if you're looking for a dessert, that's just like the fruit and it's not, and you don't want ice cream, like, yeah, creamy coconut, go for that one. Um, then next up is the pomegranate. I was on a pretty big pomegranate binge for a while. But then once I tried some of these other ones, I had to bump the pomegranate down a little bit. I saw that somebody on Twitter degraded the pomegranate because it doesn't have chunks of pomegranate, but I don't know how you would accomplish that without seeds. And I don't want seeds in my popsicle. Next up is the lemon. The lemon is much better than the lime. I apologize in telling you that. I don't know if you've had the lemon, but the lemon is perfect. Like I would eat popsicles any time of year, but the lemon is perfect for sitting outside and in summer and like just sitting on my bench outside that I have and enjoying a nice summer day. Next up is the pineapple. Pineapple would have been higher until last weekend. Pineapple is good. It has chunks of pineapple in it. Uh, I used to at Disney world, they used to sell dull pineapple popsicles that were just fantastic. And these are right on par with those. And like, when I left Disney world, I could never find any popsicles like that. But then I tried the outshine ones and I was like, okay, now I can have these when I'm not in Florida. After that, I'm going to go mango. Once I had the mango, I thought that was my second favorite one probably two months ago, but now I've just, I've reached new levels of enlightenment with the next two that I'm going to bring up. Have you had the grape, Mark? I have not. I need to, but I have not. Oh, you need to have the grape. Like, <laughs> downright, you need to have the grape. So what I said about the watermelon is the opposite of the grape. Like what we think of grape flavor, like grape flavored medicine or grape taffy, like, this is not that flavor. This is full on grape. Like, this is if you froze grape juice, but with a lot more concentrated flavor in it. Like, if, if you just went out and froze Welch's grape juice, it would not have this strong of a grape flavor. Um, mm -hmm. Very good. Very good. I like that one a lot. That, that comes in at number three. And number two, 
which I don't even really love. Like, I think this type of fruit is fine. It's not my favorite, but I'm shocked to tell you that peach is number two. Whoa. Peach is good. Peach is a legit popsicle flavor. And I think in part, like my grandma used to have a peach tree and she would freeze peaches to keep like year round. And maybe I'm just Mm -hmm. kind of in part remembering that as a memory. And maybe that's why I liked it. But like, Oh, when I tried the peach two weekends ago, I was like, this is it. Like I went into it expecting that strawberry would just be the runaway favorite. And I've just given it away. Like strawberry is still the goat. Strawberry, the pop is still number one. Nothing knocked it off, but the peach and the grape came very close. So there you have it. If you really want to know where it's at with the outshine popsicles, I highly recommend the top three of strawberry, peach, and grape. Okay. Well, I need to, next time I go grocery shopping, which considering how much I'm going to be on the road, I have no idea what it's going to be. Um, I need to go out and get some more because I ran out of my limes. I had like a 24 pack of limes and I just ran out last week. And it I didn't even sad. know they made boxes of 24. This is astonishing. I'm, information. I actually, now that I think about it, I may have just bought four boxes. Um, which is a fine thing to do. I mean, I think that that's very prudent of you. That way you don't have to make multiple long driving trips to get them. I'm like very much a, I love trying new things, but when it, so when it comes to meals, I love trying new things. When it comes to snacks, I'm very much a creature of habit because like, yeah, if I, uh, if I'm going to like choose a place to go to dinner, I'm going to put time and effort into it. If I'm busy during the day and I need a snack, I'm just like, I, I know what I'm getting. I want it. I'm going to eat it quickly. And I'm going to get the fuck back to work. So, um, yeah, uh, I, I, I will it. venture out. I, I will try. I will try new outshines. Uh, before I respect it. I mean, it took me a long time to finish this process because I always have a staple box of strawberry. Strawberry will always be in the fridge. And then lately I've been having like one other box or two other boxes that take me longer to finish. But like, I admit that the four boxes that I bought to finish this process out are already gone. The, oh coconut, the coconut, the peach, the grape. And she's on a mission, folks. The watermelon are gone. But I will say that I wasn't the only people that ate them. I did get some feedback from some other people that were at my house. Like, look, I need you to try this coconut one and tell me, like, do you agree that this is a little bit overdone? And they didn't agree. They thought it was fantastic and they actually wanted another one. So that's how Mm -hmm. I got rid of them so quickly. But um, yeah, I, I personally think that Outshine changes lives. And I now think that because I've tried them all and that Kevin Pritchard is, well, I will say that he didn't specify outshine. So if he's just meeting regular popsicles, then, you know, we don't have the same taste in frozen snacks. But now that he shared it, like, I think that we should take this thing clear to the top. Like outshine should be the New Jersey patch. Probably should put outshine on the basketball stanchions. I mean, why even stop there? No more Gamebridge Fieldhouse. Outshine Outshine Fieldhouse. Fieldhouse. I mean, think of that's a terrific name, Mark. I mean, there could even be a, a basketball team inside. I mean, there should be. There should be an outshine booth. I mean, we're influencers now. Hashtag influencer in my bio. I'm excited. Did, did, the real question: Did you and uh, did you hit up KP about about pop schools? <laughs> no, I did not. I didn't. I didn't really think I should DM him about his love of popsicles in case that wasn't in relation to my thread, seeing as how I'm a very obscure blogger on the internet. It might have just been that he was sitting outside and had one and was like, mm, I have to tweet about this, which I mean, I can respect it. There are times where you just have to tweet about popsicles. You just have to get that off. I'm not going to lie. I think you missed the golden opportunity to hit KP up about popsicles. But, you know, I, 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 I digress. But uh, I, that was our last question, right? It was. We've covered them all. All 40 questions have been combined into this two-hour monster podcast. Holy shit, it has been two hours. Okay. 
Well, Caitlin, this has been a blast. I always enjoy getting to talk, especially now that we don't get to do it as frequently. I, I always appreciate it even more. Um, to everyone who's sending questions, thank you so much. This was really fun. And it's, uh, I think you and I are both uh, bad at accepting compliments and praise and whatnot sometimes. So uh, to, to always see the outpouring that, that you guys show uh, is really cool. So thank you. Um, I had a, a great time doing this. Caitlin, do you have any closing remarks? I do not, other than if you do like listening to us and you did make it to the very end of this, the whole fives of you that did, perhaps, um, maybe consider leaving a review or hitting five stars on iTunes or Spotify. Yeah, I think we, we can get to 100 reviews pretty soon. Or not reviews, 100 ratings soon. Uh, more reviews, though, yes, that would be fantastic. But, um, Caitlin, thank you again to everyone who, uh, who listened. Thank you for listening. And most importantly, have a good rest of your day.